Welcome to the newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer. And I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for joining us. And happy Black History Month. We have a real treat for you today. An hour of storytelling on regional black history hosted live here at WHQR. This was our first try at a future series we're calling Cape Fear Conversations. And these are going to be quarterly public events to discuss issues that affect our region. This one was wonderful. So we're really excited about this new initiative. And in addition to this storytelling hour, we also had a roundtable talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Cape Fear region. We'll have more from that second panel next week. But first, I wanted to ask you, Ben, how we landed on the speakers we chose for the storytelling forum. We have Kevin Spears, Letty Gore, Derek Anderson, and Kojo Nantambu. Well, we chose a lot of familiar faces. Many of our speakers have talked with our news team in the past, and we knew that they'd have great insights into history here in Wilmington. And we wanted to focus on the black experience in more recent history too, not just in 1898. So we wanted to connect that period to the present day. Our first speaker is Kojo Nantambu, a longtime activist in the community. We were so glad to bring him in because we've heard legends about his role during the 1971 riots that led to the unjust arrests of the Wilmington Tent. Now, he doesn't get into this in his story, but he's been described to me as being instrumental in holding things together during that violent, chaotic time. It was bad, but I'm told without him, it could have been much worse. He probably saved some lives. He mostly didn't talk about the Wilmington 10, though. He goes back farther to the historic memory of 1898. And just a note, this was recorded live at WHQR, so you might hear some background noise in the audience and from the room. And just as a warning, there were some uncensored racial slurs in Kojo's speech. I want to talk about the 1898 first in some, you know, small way. First of all, I want you to understand that my great-grandmother and great-grandfather and my grandmother and her brothers and sisters were run out of town in 1898 by the riots, by which was actually the execution and the genocide that was trying to be committed on the African people of Wilmington in 1898. Uh, and of course, they lost a lot of their land. My grandparents had a whole lot of land. As a matter of fact, they had enough land to give people to build houses to start a village. And since they were godly people, they started a village by giving people land and allowing people to build houses on it. And the name of the village was Gideonville. And then my grandparents gave land to New Hanover County to build a school, which became Blunt School. And then they gave them more land to build another building, which was the Williston Senior High uh, Tailoring School. So they gave them a lot, didn't leave them with much, as you can understand. But I just want to talk about 1898 in the sense of why it happened, or how it happened. And I think a lot of times we get it, uh, we give certain people too much credit in, in the realm, and some folks have been left out. And one of the things I want to say about 1898, it was not just because of some harebrained, radical white folks uh, who were crazy, and they were, but it wasn't just the people here. You know, we know about Alfred Waddell, and we know about um, Hugh McCray, and all of those individuals who were involved. There was a lot of, and there were some evil people. Y'all can think what you want, I'm saying they're evil because they wanted to destroy the black community and the government that they had here just because they were black and just because they felt like 
African people, especially after be, being sons and daughters of slaves, had no right to have businesses that would compete with them. And as you do your research and, and discovery and find a lot of things, you will find out, and uh, Wydell said it in his speech at Dayton Hall, he said that there's no way in the world that we should allow these people, these you know, black people, mongrels, or whatever you want to call them, be allowed to have any more businesses or any more entrepreneurships in this city. We should destroy all of their businesses because they're not worthy of having a business because the city was predominant black. And just to let you know how mean-spirited and how demonic those people were, there were 17,000 people in the city of Wilmington at that time. 12,000 were black Americans, were African American. And within a week or less, it was 5,000, the 5,000 white folks were still here, and it was only 2,000 black people here. How do you get rid of 10,000 people in, in, in less than a week? And then they want to lie and say that, well, we only killed 60. Shit. You only killed 60, but what happened to the other 9,000 and uh, uh, what is 400? You only killed 60. But 10,000 people were gone. And I'm quite sure some people left, and I know they did. But the thing is, they try to tout now and make it seem like it wasn't that bad by saying, well, it was only 60 bodies. But I beg to differ because in the research that I've done and the things that I've seen, in 1971, uh, black folk really didn't know that much about 1898. And the reason they didn't, because when black folks experience horrible things, they don't talk about it. And so black folks didn't talk about it from generation to generation to make sure that their children knew about it. Fort I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, my grandmother, the one I've been talking about, she never told us what it was, but she would always tell us when we would go to Atlantic Beach, we'd have to go down Highway 17 South. And every time we got into a spot in Bolivia, she would always say, that's where we ran when the whites chased us out of Wilmington. Well, I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Didn't make much, you know, I didn't put that much together. And I never heard anybody else talk about black folks being run out of Wilmington until 1971. And in 1971, uh, this was three years after they closed Williston and made pushed forced the black students to go to the white schools. Uh, the white children were rioting on November the 10th, 1971. I had already graduated. I had already started an organization called the BYBBC, Black Youth Builders of a Better Community. And we, I was already organizing with Dr. Ben Chavis and bringing the students together here. But it was, they were rioting at John T. Hoggett. And the riot was so bad, they were running the black students out of school, chasing them down Shipyard Boulevard, but in their cars and our children were running because there wasn't no bus. The bus drivers hadn't come yet to take them where they were supposed to. This was in the middle of the day. So they're running down the street and the white kids are passing them, driving down the street, throwing, hitting them with bottles, hitting them with bricks, uh, chasing them home. And it just so happened by the grace of God, my sister-in-law was a junior, I think. She might have been a, a sophomore. And she called and said, Coach Joe, y'all need to come out here. These white folks going crazy. 
you know, and they're chasing us down the highway. And we went out there. Now, I want you to listen to this. When we got there, the sheriff's department was there filming everything, but they weren't arresting nobody. They were filming the white students, hitting the black students, chasing the black students, throwing bricks and bottles at their cars, running them up and down the highway, but they didn't do, uh, they didn't do nothing. <laughs> they didn't do anything. And I'm very serious. And when we came, myself, Dr. Chavis, and a good brother who was our local minister of, of, of uh, minister of music and minister of communication, Brother Kenyatta, Kenyatta came, we came with our camera, and they were taking pictures of us, taking pictures of what was going on. They still weren't stopping the white students from, you know, attacking the kids, and we didn't know what was going on. We knew this was planned, this was already set up somehow, and then what we found out later on the news, even though we the ones got run home, the news said, the black students at uh, Schultz rioted the day over the hockey because they were celebrating, uh, observing the anniversary of the 1898 massacre. When the hell would we be celebrating anything where our grandparents and great-grandparents were run out of town and killed, and most of them we don't know what happened to them? This is how we found out about 1898. This is when I found out what my grandmother was talking about. So. Uh, some of us went to the library once we heard that, and we started looking for the books. They had the books here, but they left one. They didn't realize there was one on the shelf. It is no longer there. And I won't tell you who has it. But this is how we found out about the 1898 massacre. We start telling everybody. We start having press conferences about it. We start having community conferences about it and talk about it. And there are a lot of things you've already heard about the uh, Wilmington Massacre. I don't want to get into it because I know I don't have that much time, but I do want to tell you this. It is because those people were just like they are right now, just like those Trump people are right now, the mega people. They don't feel like we had a right, or black folks had a right to have businesses. They don't feel like black folks had a right to have uh, any kind of investments, land, property, and they definitely feel like they didn't feel like they needed to have a place in the government. So, one of the things, this is just one thing, they felt like we, they needed to do something to get rid of them because this was during the time of fusion politics, and what happened was Alfred Waddell and his folks, you know, and Hugh McCray and all of them, they got mad and decided they needed to get rid of all the niggas and as many white folks as possible, anybody that thought that fusion politics was the way to go. And they tried to kill them all and run them out of the city. And they even had a banishment plan, and the banishment plan says, we're gonna run out all the blacks who are leaders, all the blacks who have businesses, all the blacks who have any kind of power authority in the community, and all the whites who sympathize with them. That's why this occurred. And a lot of people give Alfred Wadia, and he is the one who made the speech about killing all the blacks and, all, and other people and white people who supported them on Thalian Hall steps. And for those of you who are new in Wilmington, Thalian Hall was uh, the center for the Board of Education. It might have been City Hall at that time. But he was on City, uh, Thalian Hall steps, and he made this speech, and he was saying they needed to get rid of everybody. 
But he wasn't the only person that really created this situation. What a lot of people don't know was two white women. One white woman was named Felton, Ms. W.H. Felton from uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And she was making all of these horrendous speeches saying that we got to get rid of the niggers and we got to get rid of what well, she called them heathens and all kind of other belittled, you know, degrading names, the beast and all that. Because she said that if we want our women to be safe, we got to get rid of the mongrels, we got to get rid of the beast. Because we, and the me reason was they were saying they had too many mongrel children, too many children that, you know, and then she's couched it by saying they were a threat to white women because every time they leave the children, and they always blame this on us, every time they leave home, the white man leaves home, they knew how to blow his mind. Every time the white man leaves home, a black man will go to your house and mess with your wife. This is what they said. Now this is what she said. And this woman said that the white men in North Carolina, especially Wilmington and anywhere, need to get up, start an army, and go and kill all of the niggas if they can, but kill all of the blacks and whites. She said blacks and whites who might be in this fusion program or in this fusion agreement. And she would hope that they would just fill the, the Cape Fear River with them. That's number one. She's the one that actually caused their attention to come to the fact of what was happening because it was in the Atlanta Journal. It was in the Atlanta Journal a whole year. It was in 1980, I mean, yeah, I mean, 1980, what is it? 1997, 1897, I'm sorry. It was 1897, the spring of 1897. A year later, the brother Manley saw it and he answered her and told her, say, well, you need to stop white women from coming to the community visiting black men. And the only thing y'all are upset about is that there are white women who, are, who like black men and there are black men who get along with white women and you're scared you got too many mixed babies. That's what infuriated everybody. That's when Waddell and them got angry and that's when all the folks in this area got angry. But then there was one other lady, because she, Felton in, in Georgia, she said, what kind of men? She started challenging white men and calling them, you know, punks or whatever. She didn't say the word punk because it wasn't used at that time. But she was calling them names to make them feel belittled. But then she wasn't the only one. There was another white woman who was more prominent than her. And her name was Rebecca Cameron one of the Camerons that lived at that particular time in Hillsborough, North Carolina. And she said, she wrote a letter to Waddell and to others and said, you need to fill the Cape Fear River till it chokes with black people. Because if y'all are no kind of man, if y'all let them continue running this city and continue allowing them to grow uh, economically, without any conflict. And she challenged them. And it's the most important thing was, Rebecca Cameron was the cousin to Alfred Waddell. Do y'all listen to me? Alfred Waddell was, Rebecca Cameron, one of the Camerons who still run Wilmington, she was the cousin to Alfred Waddell. 
and she sent a letter to Alfred and to the black and to the white folks here, that all the rest of them, and told them that y'all need to kill all the black people you can. I don't care, and this is what Felton said, this part. I don't care if you kill a thousand a day. That's how they did that. So that's how that got started, and y'all know the rest of what happened in 1898. That was Kojo Nantambu speaking at WHQR's Cape Fear Conversations event. Coming up next, we'll hear from Derek Anderson, who was a high schooler during the civil unrest in Wilmington in 1971, the fallout of the firebombing of Mike's Grocery Store and the arrest of the Wilmington 10. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer here with Ben Shockman. Thanks for joining us. We are showcasing stories that we heard at our recent event, Cape Fear Conversations. This was a pilot project for us to put on a public forum discussing issues that impact the community. Next week, we'll have the second half of the show, but for now, we're sharing the lessons we learned from our speakers who talked about Black history in the Cape Fear region. Up next, we have Derek Anderson, who hosts a local Facebook Live talk show about local issues. Anderson was in high school in 1971 when violence erupted in Wilmington. But before we get to his story, a quick note to explain the background of the unrest in the early 70s for those who are unfamiliar. The Wilmington 10 were a group of nine men and one woman who were wrongfully convicted of arson and conspiracy in 1971 in Wilmington. Derek Anderson was in high school at the time, and in the months leading up to these fateful confrontations, black students were boycotting class to demand some remembrance for the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. New Hanover and Hoggard High Schools had only integrated three years before, and tensions were still high. Students used Gregory Congressional Church as a meeting location, and as their protests at the high schools continued, white vigilantes drove by the church and shot at it, injuring one reverend in an attack on February 2nd. Soon after, an armed contingent joined the protesting students, and businesses around town started getting set on fire. The inflaming confrontation was the firebombing of a white-owned grocery store called Mike's Grocery, across the street from Gregory Church. Firefighters who responded claimed that snipers shot at them from the roof of nearby Gregory Congregational Church. Police responded and killed a black man standing nearby named Steve Mitchell. Students at the church were blamed for the firebombing, and their arrest kicked off riots and conflicts between white supremacist groups and civil rights activists. All told, two people died, six were injured, and ten were wrongfully imprisoned as the result of the events of 1971. So that's the backstory. Here's Derek Anderson. Thank you, everybody. It's good to be here. And thank you, Brother Ben and his staff for inviting me. Uh, let me say this. Uh, I'm going to try to pick up with Brother Kojo. And, and back at that time, he won't say it, but he was, at the age of 19, he was legendary in our community. Yeah. And so 1971 was a watershed year for me because that was the year of the Wilmington 10. And this man is underserved in what he did for the community in keeping young black students alive. They had tanks at Gregory Congregation of Church pointing at them. National Guard had come across the Elizabeth Home Bridge. I was a junior at Hanover. They had integrated, and that's how it started, over integration. Uh, you couldn't have black cheerleaders. You couldn't have black, only black, so many blacks could be on the basketball team, so many blacks could be on the football team. 
and that nature. So black folks say, look, we got tired. Another unsung hero who has since departed, Miss Florence Warren, was a teacher at Hanover. And she was sort of our spiritual, you know, you hear a lot about Hoggett, and Hoggett ran up into the woods, man. I mean, they were rocking the bus when the black, they were rocking the bus, and uh, they were catching hell at Hoggett. So once they escaped Hoggett, the black students would come to Hanover and say, man, we catching hell. <laughs> and uh, 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 we would sympathize with them because there wasn't, not that Hanover at that time was uh, all uh, yummy, yummy and kumbaya, but it was less strident. The hatred was a little less strident than Hoggett. And that was mainly because Hanover was in the inner city. Yeah. <laughs> Hanover was surrounded by, the, by black people, so they couldn't get but so much uh, going there. But going through there and seeing the riots started and the, and the city burning, and the uh, National Guard troops had been federalized by uh, Nixon and they were coming across the bridge. Uh, you know, I'm 17 years old and I'm watching all of this. And I wanted to be out there with Kojo and them, but my grandmama wouldn't let me. No, you know, she, uh, <laughs> and if she didn't know Kojo was out there, she wouldn't have got him. Because <laughs> Kojo used to come to the house and eat fried chicken. So, uh, so <laughs> you know. And whatever else my grandmama would cook. So she said, well, if you go out there, son, where you gonna stay when you come back home? So I had to hear all of this stuff secondhand, and it, it turned into this massive thing that we know as the Wilmington 10 worldwide. I would go to school in Hanover, and the boycott was so big that Hanover was a student body of 2,000. There might, be, there might have been nine blacks in the whole school because everybody was out of school. Nobody went to school. That was the boycott. But, uh, go ahead on, but us, we nine blacks would walk together, hung together, uh, and felt so isolated because we wanted to really be out there with those kids when they were in the, they were in the church, they were protesting. Uh, the, the Klan would ride by at night and fire shots at the church and uh, come down Worcester Street, they would come down Worcester, the Klan would come down Worcester, they would leave you McCray Park yes. because it was a group called the Rights of the White People Party led by Leroy Gibson, who was from, he wasn't even from Worcester, he was from Jacksonville. But I guess you would call that group the day's Proud Boys, I hate to mention that day. But they would, they would drive down Dawson, which was two-way at the time, then drive down Worcester, which was two-way at the time. But Funny thing about it, once, and I won't tell you who the leader was, but his initials are Kojo Nantambu, <laughs> would finally, finally got wind of what these guys were doing, <laughs> and the Klan got ambushed. <laughs> so, so, but, uh, but just growing up through that time, uh, you, you got to witness a lot. Uh, you know, there was segregation in Wilmington, no doubt about it. The school integration didn't go great, did not go well at all. And I think some of the legacy is still today. Right. You know, I think some of what you're hearing and some of the feedback you're hearing in the uh, school system uh, about what, you know, we want this, we want to turn back, uh, that's, that's nothing new. And I'll just end it by saying this. Uh, you, when you see something at the root, you got to cut it off. That's what right. you're seeing today, if you do not stop it, it's going to fester, right. just like a cancer. Uh, and if you don't cut it off at the root, what you see going on today in this public school system, what, what you're on, on, witnessing on the news, 
if everybody don't stand up against it, it's going to be worse than what it was in uh, 1971. Thanks, everybody, for coming. That was Derek Anderson. Next up is Letty Gore, a historian, racial justice educator, and podcaster here in Wilmington. How many of y'all have heard of the Green Book before? Yes. Okay, so um, the Green Book, it was also a movie. Um, Mahershala Ali did a wonderful job. The movie, however, was not historically accurate um, because it was very feel-good. It was very, very feel-good. I often say that any movie that wins a huge award that's about racism and and white supremacy... (laughs) They didn't tell the truth about it. <laughs> there, ain't, there ain't no way. There's no, there's no way. So um, that movie came out, I believe it was the year that I did the lecture at the Bellamy Museum. That's where I first did it, in October 2019. And the reason why I did is because there was a Star News article about the Green Book locations here in Wilmington. And it listed about 10 locations. And I was like, ah, that don't seem right for a port city. Definitely not for Wilmington geographically. So I went and did some digging in the New York Public Library's online archive, and I found all the editions of the Green Book. And so I dug through them, and I created this database and everything of each each location. Um, There are 52 here, actually, 52. Um, The Green Book was in existence from 1937 to 1967. Technically, the first edition was 1936, but uh, whenever Victor Hugo Green started it, it was kind of like a trial run. And Victor Hugo Green lived in Harlem, New York. And um, whenever people look at the Green Book or they read about the Green Book, um, it's really easy to see it as just a travel guide. Right? People look at history and they isolate it. But history should never be isolated. And history is not linear. Um, right? There's so much more going on that causes something to happen the way that it happens and when it happens. So it's no coincidence that the 30s um, is whenever we see the Green Book come into existence. Definitely not a coincidence that we see the mid-40s get more Green Book locations. And the reason is because of World War II. And the reason is also because of um, economic empowerment among black people um, in middle classes, especially here in Wilmington. So there's a gap, there's a void in the historical record. We talk about what Reverend Kojo and um, Mr. Anderson talked about regarding 1898 and the Wilmington 10, which are extremely important, right? Absolutely. And then there's the middle. Right, there's the 30s and the 40s and the 50s aren't really talked about as much. There are reasons for that. Uh, much of it is because um, we, as black people, we, we couldn't talk about a lot. Um, we were not allowed to put our stories in the mainstream newspapers, which is why I'm really glad that we had black newspapers, and that's why I like the Wilmington Journal, it's so important. Um, and so, um, there's stories, right? There are stories that easily are overlooked. So when we think about the Green Book, you think, oh, well, that's great. Black people had this guide and they could travel anywhere. Not really. Uh, not, that's, that's not really how it went. Um, the Green Book was a literal survival guide. Like it wasn't a, oh, we're going to do this for fun. Oh, this is going to be great. Literally survival. Um, you have to imagine, right, like driving down. I'm from Brunswick County, so I imagine driving down or driving in Ash, North Carolina, 
1945 with no lights on a car. <laughs> and I mean, even now, you don't go to certain places in Brunson County, right? You know, my parents were born in 1945 and 1951, so they've seen some stuff, right? And so whenever I hear them talking about the history and traveling, that also spurred me to be like, okay, well, what else does the Green Book actually tell us about history? So it's a bigger story about movement and autonomy. Um, and if you look up the definition of autonomy, it is essentially the ability to move about with your freedom as you want to. Uh, we, we didn't have that. We, we still don't have that. Um, and the reason why I say we, we still don't have that is because if you think that we do, then you ain't living in 2023 America, right? So whenever you think about the Green Book and you look at Wilmington, you have to look at, yes, 1898 and the Wilmington 10, but you, have to, you also have to look at what was happening in between that time. So huge things that even allowed the Green Book to exist. Um, the development of railroads, the highway, you wouldn't have the Green Book had there been no highway, um, cars, and you can easily think, oh, well, that means that black people had money and they were able to afford cars and everything. Well, essentially what it was is you would have one black person maybe in a family that had a car, and then everyone would ride in that car. You also have to think that in 1937 to 1967, you're also seeing two waves of the Great Migration. So the first wave happened in the early 1900s, then you have the second wave of the Great Migration around the 1940s, and the last wave was in the mid-1960s. And the reason for this is, you know, yes, some people did just migrate, they did just migrate up north for jobs, but people fled the South. I don't use the language of they just left, or they just moved. And that sounds very voluntary. It wasn't voluntary. Um, people were literally fleeing from horror here. And so whenever you have that, it's really easy also to think about the lack of autonomy, the lack of freedom. And then it comes into question what it means to be a democratic country whenever our entire voting system is not democratic. But anyway, it's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but um, here in Wilmington, you had 52 locations. You had restaurants, barbershops, beauty parlors, taxi cabs, which essentially were like black people's versions of Uber before Uber was Uber. Um, uh, yeah, boarding houses, you had, you had like Payne's Tourist Home, Murphy's Hotel, some of the barbershops, right, Johnson's Barbershop, tons of beauty parlors, um, Lazora's Beauty Shop, um, Celeste, you had Germany's Beauty Parlor, you had restaurants like Ollie's and Johnson's, and I mean, these are some of the places you can still go to them, but you wouldn't know they were a Green Book location because now they're named different things, or the buildings are just gone. And so we think about traveling and we think about black people today in the country. We think about freedom, what freedom actually means. You look at Wilmington in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, and you look at the Jim Crow laws, and you look at the crimes that were going unsolved the newspapers that wouldn't, that wouldn't report them, the cops that would not go to the black people's houses, um, the cops that would um, threaten the black people if they did call the cops about something that, that they did. Uh, you think about black people trying to leave to go work and they are not allowed to get on a train to go work because they don't have the right pass. Then if you don't have the right pass, there are vagrancy laws, so then you can get arrested. Then you go to jail. There's all kinds of things going on with autonomy 
and black people. And it goes back to slavery. Everything goes back to slavery, by the way. Literally everything goes back to slavery with movement and autonomy and freedom. And then you think, oh, well, then slavery ended and they were free. Uh, freedom is a very subjective term, right? So actually there wasn't freedom. Um, there was just, slavery was just, um, it just evolved into the re-enslavement of black people, either by convict leasing or by sharecropping or whichever thing it was. And then you look at what it did psychologically to black people. You gotta look at that aspect of autonomy and freedom, right? So when we think about this, we think about what it meant to survive, why it was necessary to survive in the way that black people had to. And so when we look today at black men, black women, black people, black children um, being pulled over by police officers, and we think about traveling, and we think about how it's a free country, right? So, oh, this is, this is the United States, the land of the free, the home of the brave. What, you know, eh. But to who, right? Who's, whose autonomy are we actually talking about? And so I think back to 2020 here in uh, Wilmington, right there on City Hall steps. Uh, I wasn't down here every day, but I came down here quite a bit to protest. And I was thinking about autonomy then and the freedom of movement. Um, and even whenever there are laws and, oh, there are rules that you have to follow, you saw certain people being able to get by with them and certain people not. I watched it by the cops, right, by the sheriffs, by those who are supposed to, who would get on the news the next day and I would read an article and it's completely a lie, complete lie about what happened. And so a lot of talk that year was about traveling and black people and maybe we need a new green book and people were joking about it, but I was like, no, but honestly, right? Um, because essentially what it's been about for black people is always survival. Why we have to survive how we do. Um, who decides if we survive or not? And that all comes down to power and everything like that. But here in Wilmington, in a city where the only successful coup in the history of the country happened, the only place, the only place where that took place, right? People look at January 6, 2021, they're like, oh my God, that, that, that was horrific. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, times that by about 100. And you have 1898 right here in Wilmington, right? Or you have a lynching that happened and there are 4,000 people who attend and they're eating lunch, like it's fun, right? So, um, I, and I say all this to talk about, to bring it back to autonomy. Whenever you think about travel, you think about survival, I don't want you to look at the Green Book as a fun vacation and black people could just do it and it was great and they were able to go and spend time with their families. They were excited. And it speaks, but I want you to center black people in your view of it, though. So, yes, you can center these facts I've told you regarding survival and fear and what it meant to do these things and risking yourselves, your actual lives and sacrificing. But also the fact that um, there's something that could not be taken away from black people. Um, there's a book by Dinah Ramey Berry. It's called The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. She um, basically talks about the physical price of enslaved black people from literally preconception to death. Um, she went through like 88,000 records, took her like 10 years to write the book. And there's something that she calls the soul value of enslaved black people. And it was something that could not be taken away. 
Um, it was something that was dignity, it was respect, it was love, it was community. And it all connects back to literally the fact that if it wasn't for the Green Book and if it wasn't for black people in Wilmington being able to look at what they could do together. So when we think about that, you have to think about black culture, black love, black travel, but also while we look at the black community today in Wilmington and we wonder, maybe there's this problem or maybe there's that problem, but no one's asking the black community. No one talks to the black people enough, enough. And so with the Green Book, these are stories I want to tell. This is what I want to show. Why it's important to talk about not just the autonomy of black people, but us as a people and us as far as survival in connection to 1898 and 1971. That was Letty Gore, an educator and historian in Wilmington. Coming up, we'll hear from Kevin Spears about a more recent history and the role of historic memory in the black community. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. listening to the newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm Kelly Knoyer here with Ben Shackman. Today we're showcasing the lectures we heard at our recent event, Cape Fear Conversations. Our next speaker is Wilmington City Councilman Kevin Spears, who finished off our program on Saturday, February 11th. He focused on a more recent vision of black life in Wilmington, drawn from his personal experience. We've gotten a very good snapshot of Wilmington, North Carolina. And um, thank you, Reverend Kojo. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Letty. I was thinking over the week what I would say, and I think that my background and my experience is so different from everyone who sat here before me. I've been able to experience Wilmington a little differently. I've experienced Wilmington where we did not know that black history. I went to Snipes in kindergarten. Then I went to Blunt in the first grade. And then I went to Winter Park in the second grade. And I was born in 76. So, you know, we didn't know what was happening. We didn't understand we were right on the the end of, well, not the end, the beginning of when the integration started. We just knew we had to change schools. We just knew that from turnkey, we went to a school that was right down the street to a school that was up Market Street. And then we went to Winter Park. It was a bus ride. All right, let's get on the bus. Hey, let's go to school with some some white kids. We had white kids in, in, in turnkey back then. We had two white families. Didn't treat them any differently. So what now, in in year 46, and probably years back, you learn where you were during these historical events. And it's eye-opening. Wow. So we went here from here to there because of this. And when you grow up in the black community, we oftentimes we hear about single family homes. Mom over here, dad over here, and 
everybody's center is grandmas. But in the black culture, that's wealth. Instead of having one home, I got two. <laughs> I got dad's house, I got mom's house, and we all get together at grandma's house. Grandma runs the family. African society is maternal, matriarchs. The black women run the family. So as we grow, we don't know these things. Oh, so I, I said I went to Snipes, Blair, Winter Park. I went to Williston Middle School. Williston Middle School. Yeah. Now I didn't know anything at that time about Williston Senior High School and Williston Senior High School being the greatest school under the sun. <laughs> but the connection is my sixth grade teacher was Florence Warren. <laughs> so I was in school and I was a bad little kid. <laughs> and Florence Warren said, are you one of those spears from the north side? <laughs> I said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not from the north side. I live, I live in Turnkey. So I come home, you know, like most little kids. Mom, my teacher asked me if we were from, if I was a spirit from the north side. My grandmother said, listen, when you go back tomorrow, you tell her, yeah. <laughs> I went back, I told her, yeah. But I say that to say that the history is all connected. And in this community, that's how it works. That's how it worked. Everybody knew everybody. There was a connection. There were things you could do. There were things you couldn't do. And no matter what you did, good or bad, it beat you home. I, as I say that, I can remember my grandmother, she worked at the hospital for 20 years. She grew up in, uh, she was born in 1935. She was born, she was born in 1935 she, in, in Whiteville. She was a hardworking lady. She had 10 children. She took work extremely she was passionate about work, but she was, and I don't think she had more than a seventh grade education, but she was very, very passionate about education. Again, as I think back, I remember all the encyclopedias. You, you remember when, when it's funny, but it, it, when the, the white guy came around selling the encyclopedias, you knock on the door and you, you buy, <laughs> right, and so, all of these books. And she, she was more concerned about the education of her lineage going forward. So that puts me where I am. And that's kind of like the fast track puts me to where I am. But you talk about Wilmington and what we're all finding out now. And it's an aha moment. It's the light bulb for us all. It is the connection to, to history. Again, I talk about Florence Warren asking me if I was from the North Side. My grandmother's uncle who raised her lived on the North Side. So every weekend, we got in the one car that my grandmother owned and we went to the North Side. And it was like a family vacation. 
She saw her brothers, her sisters. We saw our cousins. Like I said, she had 10 kids. <laughs> I mean, she had 10 kids, but she was the oldest of eight. And so you're talking about a huge family. But we were just so connected, but we never knew the history. And now that we know this history, it is our duty to inform the generations to come of the power that we have, the ingenuity that we've had, and it does something to you. There is no way you become informed about 1897, 1896, and the businesses that existed during that time and not become empowered. And you don't poke your chest out. You don't hold your head high and walk with a sense of pride. There's not many of us in this room up until a couple of years that knew that Wilmington, North Carolina was 60% at least black. We never knew that. We never knew who Hugh McCray was. We never understood the significance of Market Street. We understand so much about, well, no, we don't understand so much about Keenan. Keenansville, what's, what's the other place? Sprunt, James Sprunt. Community College, named after James Sprunt. Who was he, what did he do? We don't understand the significance of what happened after 1898 and in that initial nine who put together the coup. Waddell was, he was, he was influential, but he wasn't the one. He was just the man to do the work. But you look at what happened after that, and who was the guy that, one of the guys ended up creating what would eventually be CPNL. But you're talking about, for some, generational wealth. Mm -hmm. Round trees, Camerons, they're still, they're still in power, for the lack of a better term, today. Yeah, they're very influential in where we come from. But we have to understand, and we have to band together. So, and, and the Fusion Party was a, a great thing. The Fusion Party was not only a great thing in 1896 and 1897. Wilmington was the largest city in North Carolina. But Wilmington may have been the most unique city in the United States. That's why it was important for what took place to happen. And so we all have a responsibility to, to see what's going on, but to not see, well, to see what's going on, but to also acknowledge what took place before us. And, and so um, that's that. I think we should take a piece from everybody that sits here today 
and the stories that they've given us because we, we've all learned something new. We, we continuously learn new things. And once you put them into play with what's happening, what we see on the news and, and, and what we see in uh, zonings and new development and school boards and councils and commissioners, you know, and, and January the 6th, 2021, this is, this is not a new playbook, what I mean to say. This is the very exact same playbook from back in the day. And you don't have to come up with a new game plan when the old one continues to work. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, staff. That was Kevin Spears, Wilmington City Councilman, talking about his experiences growing up in Wilmington. Thank you to all our guests for that panel, Letty Gore, Derek Anderson, Kojo Nantambu, and Kevin Spears. We'll have an episode on our second panel coming out next week. And thanks also to our WHQR staff for the work pulling this event together, particularly Mary Bradley, Kim Nelson, and Sharp Williams from the development team, and all of our wonderful news staffers who scheduled speakers and facilitated the event. And of course, thanks to the WHQR production team, Ken Campbell, Jonathan Fresnel, and Megan McDevitt. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast pretty much everywhere you get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Shockman. And I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of the Newsroom. Newsroom.